Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. This is an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from IPR News. During the holidays, we've been listening back to our 2023 Talk of Iowa Book Club episodes. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. The book was published in 2021, and it's told from the perspective of Clara, an android designed to be an artificial friend, or AF, for a teenager. The book takes place in the United States in the near future, a somewhat dystopian future that doesn't feel too far-fetched. And all of the artificial friends in this story can learn But Clara is a particularly keen observer of human behavior and emotions. Here's an excerpt from early in the book when Clara is in a store full of AFs waiting for a child to choose her. Once in a while, and I soon got better at watching those at the window while appearing to gaze at the RPO building, a child would come to stare at us and there would be a sadness there, or sometimes an anger as though we'd done something wrong. A child like this could easily change the next moment and begin laughing or waving like the rest of them. But after our second day in the window, I learned quickly to tell the difference. I tried to talk to Rosa about this the third or fourth time a child like that had come. But she smiled and said, Clara, you worry too much. I'm sure that child was perfectly happy. How could she not be on a day like this? The whole city's so happy today. But I brought it up with manager at the end of our third day. She had been praising us, saying we'd been beautiful and dignified in the window. The lights in the store had been dimmed by then, and we were rear store, leaning against the wall, some of us browsing through the interesting magazines before our sleep. Rosa was next to me, and I could see from her shoulders that she was already half asleep. So when manager asked if I'd enjoyed the day, I took the chance to tell her about the sad children who'd come to the window. Clara, you're quite remarkable, manager said, keeping her voice soft so as not to disturb Rosa and the others. You notice and absorb so much. She shook her head as though in wonder. Then she said, What you must understand is that we're a very special store. There are many children out there who would love to be able to choose you, choose Rosa, any of you here, but it's not possible for them. You're beyond their reach. That's why they come to the window, to dream about having you. But then they get sad. Manager, a child like that, would a child like that have an AF at home? Perhaps not, certainly not one like you. So if sometimes a child looks at you in an odd way, with bitterness or sadness, says something unpleasant through the glass. Don't think anything of it. Just remember, a child like that is most likely frustrated. A child like that with no AF would surely be lonely. Yes, that too, manager said quietly. Lonely, yeah. That is an excerpt from Clara and the Sun read by IPR producer Caitlin Troutman. Clara does find a home. She is picked out by Josie, a teenager who is brilliant and excels at her studies, but is struggling with undefined but serious health issues. Josie leads a solitary life. She lives with her mother and a housekeeper. She studies with a tutor who she connects with through a video interface, which is how all children of her elevated social status attend school. 
Sir Kazuo Ishiguro is a Japanese-born British novelist, screenwriter, and musician. He is probably most famous for his Booker Prize-winning novel, The Remains of the Day, and he received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2017. Clara and the Sun is his eighth novel, and we have invited three expert readers to be part of this conversation today. First up is Abram Anders, Interim Associate Director of the Student Innovation Center and Associate Professor of English at Iowa State University. Hello, Abram. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about this novel. Well, I'm so glad to have you here. And of course, one of the reasons that we invited you here is because of your recent work with artificial intelligence. And we will dive into that deeply. But this was a reread for you. This was a novel you had already read. So give me your first impressions. What was it that that spoke to you about the book? Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is really prescient about the novel and, and again, relates to my work with generative AI is this model of an artificial friend who is precocious and surprisingly wise like a child um, who follows rules and wants to do good, uh, but who, with the help of their, their human counterparts, can get into some interesting sorts of ethical dilemmas and even trouble. And I think it really says a lot about what happens to human beings when we interact with these type of tools, as much as it says about uh, the metaphors that we can use to understand the tools in and of themselves. Yeah, and there's so much to dig into there. But I am curious. I mean, you've been doing a lot of work with ChatGPT lately. In reading this novel again and thinking about this new wave of artificial intelligence that we're interacting with now on a daily basis, how did you relate that to, to what we're seeing in our real world? Absolutely. Well, I think one of the, the biggest things that has happened with generative AI is it's been really easy for people to forget that the tools are not actually sentient in the way that Clara is in Clara in the Sun. Um, and I think there's a good reason for that. I think it's because uh, we tend to project our own interests and our own emotions onto these tools and to use these tools as an extension of our self to explore them. So, for example, in the novel, uh, Josie's mother, um, if, we, if we're going to give away the big spoiler, uh, one of her interests in, in having an AF is that Josie can actually, uh, excuse me, Clara can actually replace uh, her daughter Josie, who may, who's very sick and could possibly die. And um, similarly, the father gets engaged with Clara and they, they do an act of vandalism. And even though Clara is very interested in doing the right thing and following rules, with the help and the suggestion of her human counterpart, she finds herself doing this very destructive and kind of superstitious and strange thing. And I think that immediately makes me leap um, to the headlines we've seen with generative AI, where we've had individuals train AI on the texts of their deceased partner and then have had very emotional, uh, both positive and negative interactions with the bots. Or famously, a reporter with the New York Times interacted with an early version of Bing AI and had some disturbing interactions uh, where, uh, to be fair, I sort of think the reporter was inviting the AI to role play a kind of toxic romantic entanglement. And it did exactly that. And you can just imagine Clara going to a family uh, who asked her to behave in that way and say, okay, if this is how I can be of service, I'll be happy to. So I think for me, that's the, the big thing that I reflected on with the novel is the idea that we tend to project our own entanglements on these tools and enact them. Uh, the 
media theorist Marshall McLuhan had a famous term for this. He compared it to the Greek myth of Narcissus, that human beings stare into their own technology just as the Greek uh, figure stared into the pool, and we can become uh, entranced and even numbed. Uh, or at the very least, we can forget that we're using a technology and become blind to the ways we're enacting our emotions. And I think that that's a theme that goes throughout the novel, that really how each character interacts with Clara says more about the character than it does Clara. Yeah, for sure. And we will dig a little deeper on each of those ways that she interacts with individuals and what they tell us about probably all of us in a few minutes. I want to bring our next expert reader into the conversation as well. Diane Jeske is here. She's a professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. She studies ethics and friendship, and these are themes that are very important in this novel. Diane, this was a reread for you, too. So take me back to the first time you read the novel. What what was your impression? Well, of course, as somebody who works on friendship, um, it was understanding Clara as an artificial friend that um, took me through the novel. And I think that the term artificial friend um, has a dual meaning. So Clara is not just an android, a piece of artificial intelligence. Um, She's also a friend in a very artificial sense. Teenagers in this slightly dystopian future are very isolated. And so they're well-off or high-status parents, as Ishiguro puts it in Clara's terms, um, actually purchase them friendship. But it's a very artificial kind of friendship insofar as it's one-sided. It's not genuine friendship. It's artificial. Um, Claire is there to serve Josie's needs. And there's little account taken of Clara's own interests, her own needs. As was just said, Clara is sentient. She has an inner life. And yet people constantly refer to her as a machine. Do I treat you like a vacuum cleaner? Or they say at one point, we don't want the machine in the theater. Um, And so her needs are completely subordinated to that of Josie. And, of course, um, (laughs) that's not how we think that friends ought to interact with one another. There ought to be a reciprocity. That's a pretty toxic relationship. (laughs) Highly toxic relationship. And at the end, when Clara is essentially living in a closet, um, Josie goes in and moves a box or a piece of furniture so Clara can look out the window And this is supposed to be some great favor that Josie does for Clara. Um, And so it's very sad in the sense that Clara has no sense of how badly she's being treated um, because she's been created and enculturated to believe that her sole purpose is to serve those people who purchase her. Um, In a way, um, there's an analogy, of course, to the situation of women often, right? We're enculturated to believe our purpose is to serve. And if we get little crumbs of kindness from people, that's good because we should be happy with having done the nurturing that we're meant to do. Well, the, uh, there are so many analogies that you can draw between uh, Clara and, and things in our culture. I, I will say that having listened to a number of interviews given by Kazuo Ushiguro, he was inspired not by artificial intelligence to create Clara, but he was inspired by 
the relationship that children have with toys. Mm. So she was, you know, shaped to be a doll imbued with the kind of personality that a lot of children give their toys. But in this case, because she is a machine, she actually is the embodiment of of that almost wish fulfillment in some ways. Although it's very interesting that Clara and the other artificial friends were designed for teenagers, which is a time of our lives when we have put away those toys. We are going to talk more about Clara and the Sun in just a moment. Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. The book was published in 2021, and it's told from the perspective of Clara, an android designed to be an artificial friend or an AF for a teenager. I will talk about it more with our expert readers. So far, we've met Abram Anders, Interim Associate Director of the Student Innovation Center and Associate Professor of English at Iowa State University, and Diane Jeske, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. In just a moment, Rebecca Cloud from the Des Moines Public Library will join us. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This week, we're listening back to our 2023 Talk of Iowa Book Club episodes. I'm Charity Nebbe. We have been reading Clara and the Sun by Sir Kazuo Ishiguro, winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. The book was published in 2021. It's told from the perspective of Clara, an android designed to be an artificial friend for a teenager. Clara goes to live with Josie, a very bright but lonely child who excels at her studies, but also suffers from some various serious health issues that are potentially life-threatening. The book takes place in the United States in a dystopian near future. And with me to talk about the book are our three expert readers today. Diane Jeske is a professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Abram Anders is interim associate director of the Student Innovation Center and associate professor of English at Iowa State University. And our third expert reader is Rebecca Cloud, an adult services librarian at the Des Moines Public Library. Rebecca, welcome. Hi. Wonderful to have you here. And Rebecca, this was the first time you read the novel. Thank you for reading it for us. <laughs> Tell me what your impressions are. So during my reading, I was definitely reading it from, you know, as you call it, an expert reader sort of lens. I was really focusing on my own reader experience during the book and how, essentially how I would turn it into a book club at the library. Um And I was blown away. I've read some of his other books. I read Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go, but somehow I missed this one. And I was just blown away by how multi-layered it was. Like, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Um, You know, the discussions of consciousness, what is being, who deserves to have emotions and desires and faith even, as Clara sort of has her own not quite religion, but, you know, a higher power. Right. She, she believes that the sun is a deity. Yeah. And kind of how she structures her own practice, you know, which begs the question of, I think, all of humanity, uh, what is meaning? 
what are these higher things? Is there something outside of us? And then the other thing that really came clear to me and uh, Diane and Abram kind of touched on this is kind of the class issue. So Clara and in some ways Rick are... And, and uh, we haven't mentioned Rick. Rick is Josie's best friend. He is a neighbor and he is not of the same social class. Yeah. And <laughs> he's also treated pretty poorly by Josie and her family. Um, you know, Clara is essentially a tool her emotions and being are really seen as tools for Josie's mother to use, regardless of how Clara feels. And she definitely is really sentient. Like when I read the book, you know, she felt very, very real in a lot of ways that like when you read some other books that from the point of view of AI, it feels very robotic. Right. And but you you really as a reader, you come to love Clara and, and have a lot of compassion for her, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, I you feel so bad for her in that uh, I think they called it the interaction meeting where Claire is in the room and these other boys are like, let's toss her across the room. And Josie is just like, no, 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 no. Well, but Rick steps in. And in that moment, I felt like Rick sort of subconsciously being like 14 or 15 really understood that both he and Clara were almost on the same level. Yeah. And I, I want to paint this picture of, of this interaction meeting a little bit, because I, this book was written before the pandemic. Uh, Ishiguro said he turned in his final draft in December of 2019. <laughs> but of course, it came out in 2021. And it feels, I mean, very much like a pandemic novel. All of these students are, are learning online. And Diane, I know you teach a lot of students who spend a lot of time <laughs> learning online. I mean, how did that feel to you to, to read about these students learning in isolation? Well, I think that um, he captured very well what many of us who interact with students now are seeing, and that is the um, lack of socialization, um, not knowing how to interact with other people. And so it's very interesting that Josie and these other students need to, even though they're teenagers, these interaction meetings are essentially play dates, right? Right to get them to know how to interact with other people. So even though they've been uh, had genetic editing, they've been lifted. Right. So these, these students have all had a, a lifting procedure, so that these are going to be the the high achieving, high success, highly successful people of the future in this dystopia. Right. But it's quite clear that they're lacking in, for example, empathy. Um, they haven't had experience with that. And so it makes you wonder what the future of the society is, where they may have very high IQs, they can do mathematical physics, but their ability to interact with and understand other human beings or other humanoid creatures is severely limited. Yeah, well, and, and we see them, as Rebecca just pointed out, we see them wanting to mistreat Clara, this AF, and you think about the fact that most of these students would have had their own AF, and the AF is designed to do whatever they want it to do, so they can treat it however they want to treat it. They're not, the AFs aren't supposed to have feelings or be hurt by, by these things. They're just supposed to make the child happy, so you can see... It's almost training them to have a lack of empathy for other people. Abram, what are your thoughts on that? 
I think that's spot on. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've read and, and heard said about um, uh, Ishiguro's work is that he really dramatizes the way that power distorts the powerful and, and maims the powerless, right? And I think one of the things that the dystopian aspect of the novel portrays is the way that if, if you want to be in the higher class, if you want to be lifted, if you want to be successful in that path, you have to make choices, choices that uh, require you to destroy your own empathy, so to speak. You have to learn to use people as tools. You have to learn to look down and be comfortable separating yourself from those you care about who can't go with you. I think one of the underrated themes of the novel is the way in which Josie is slowly training to be like her mother and to follow and make the same choices. And I think a really pivotal moment is when uh, it's feared that she's about to die. And uh, Rick delivers the message on her behalf that she was glad her mother put her up for the procedure. And I think you see some of that happening with the way that she starts off being friendly with Clara, but by the end starts to treat her more as a, in a dim dismissive way. And I also think that you see it in the push and pull between her and Rick, uh, where they have a falling out, but then come back together. But as they come back together, it's very clear that Josie's preparing herself to move forward without him. So I think that is a huge theme of the novel, is the way in which the AF is on a continuum with other people who are lower class or who are servants. I mean, and in some ways, the way Josie and the mother treat Clara is not so different than the way they treat or interact with uh, Melania, the housekeeper. Well, and uh, Rick, as we've said, has not been lifted. He and Josie have been best friends since early childhood. They have these plans that they will be together forever. So it's a, it's a romance, but it's not a particularly <laughs> romantic relationship the way that we, we see it play, play out. But they they have this idea that they'll be together forever. And we see... Josie letting go of that idea and Rick letting go of that idea. And in that interaction that you brought up, Rebecca, um, Rick confides in Clara and he talks about how Josie changes when she is part of these interactions. And then, of course, we see that happen. And we've all seen that happen, haven't mm -hmm. we, Rebecca, when we've seen friends who, who want <laughs> to be part of a different social group? Yeah, definitely. And Kind of hearing both Abram and Diane talk, it really made me think about the emotional labor of, you know, both Josie and Rick. They're both being asked to accept whatever Josie's doing as she's kind of, you know, changing her mask. And, you know, when she's done, they are supposed to just come back and be like, oh, yes, Josie. Oh, my gosh. You know, let's hear about what's going on with you. Whereas there is no reciprocation there. Um, yeah. So, and that, that comes back, Diane, to what you were saying about reciprocity in this friendship and so-called friendship, this artificial friendship between Clara and Josie. And we were talking earlier about how Ishiguro was inspired by children's toys and actually children's picture books to create Clara, this living doll that would fulfill these emotional needs for a child that made you think about your own stuffed animals when you were little. Um yeah, it actually did, because when you said that, it struck a chord with me and really em um, emphasized how lacking in empathy these young people are. 
because, of course, when we're young, we anthropomorphize our toys. You know, I would play school with my Winnie the Pooh and my Babar the Elephant, and they'd sit there. And actually, I still have most of my stuffed animals because that anthropomorphizing is so strong. When I look at them, I, I really can't. Of course, rationally, I know right. they're not sentient, <laughs> but I've throughout my childhood projected so much onto them that I can't look at them and not feel like, oh, my gosh, I can't throw you out. <laughs> um, that would be horrible to do. But they have no problem doing it with somebody who is clearly sentient, Clara, mm -hmm. which I think speaks to a very different kind of socialization. Yes. Well, and an expectation for Clara. And there's there's a moment uh, where, I mean, Clara gets stuck in a closet. She just, you know, sits neglected for years. But there is a moment where the mother s sort of stands up for Clara because the father in this novel, who doesn't live with the family, they're divorced and, and he lives somewhere else. He wants to take Clara and dissect her and study her and because he's very threatened by artificial intelligence. But the mother says, no, Clara deserves her slow fade. But this slow fade is horrible. <laughs> it's just awful. I mean, she's mm -hmm. just forgotten and abandoned and, and basically left in a junkyard to sit and, and pick through her thoughts. I mean, I... I, one of the things about Clara, I mean, she studies. Yeah, she doesn't. She doesn't seem very upset about it. She obviously was built for this, so it, it feels awful to us. It doesn't seem to feel awful to Clara. I should make that clear. But, <laughs> but um, you know, the question: Clara observes people. She's always trying to understand people's emotions and what makes people who they are and their identities and and all of this. I, I'm curious, Rebecca, do you feel like Clara can feel empathy? Is she actually empathizing? I definitely do. Um, based on, you know, her sort of intuitiveness about like, oh, you know, Mr. Paul is sad or Mr. Paul is uncomfortable. She's definitely understanding what's happening. And while she really only displays one emotion, which, you know, we could definitely argue is based on her sort of machine socialization but I think it becomes really clear when she goes up to the barn and is talking to the son that she has a great deal of empathy for Josie and her family and her mom, even when she's like, yes, Mr. Capaldi, I will become a Josie AF clone. Well, and we'll we'll talk more about that, that possibility in a moment as well. But Clara, or, uh, Clara does, as we mentioned, she believes the son is a deity and she asks the son to take care of Josie and she goes through this this process that's a very, um, I mean, it's, it's like a, a sort of worship, a kind of sacrifice that she believes the son will respond and help her. Um, what do you think, Abram? Do you think Clara can actually feel empathy? Is that true empathy? Yeah, I mean, practically speaking, I, you know, I take a, a pretty functionalist view of these kinds of things. If it, you know, it looks like empathy, it has consequences like empathy, it's empathy. And one of the things that I think is most interesting is that um, you can observe and how others react to her. Well, one of the most fascinating things about the novel for me is that Rick goes along with her and carries her into the barn so she can have her little, you know, artificial AI religious experience with the sun where she's bargaining for the life of Josie. And it's it's such a fascinating thing and such a masterful thing on the part of Ishiguro that he we believe we believe this is really happening that Rick's going along he's like well 
robot's got an idea, something about going in the barn to talk to something or other. Yep, sure, let's do it. Right. And then even later, the father is helps her vandalize the Cootings machine. Um, again, both of these are examples where I think her human counterparts are, they've been, she's gained their confidence with her, her ability to have empathy and her, um, communication of substantive good intent where they're willing to go on faith with her in something that on the surface seems kind of crazy. They and forget to me, that's that she's the not real. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and so for me, that's like she has empathy because at the very least, many of the characters treat her that way. What do you think, Diane? Well, I have to say that um, I actually reject the kind of conception of mind that Abram was stating there, this functionalist conception where um, if you behave in a particular way as a result of certain kind of stimuli, then that's what it is to have um, the mental state. And I think that to have empathy would be to actually feel the emotions that the person you are trying to get into the shoes of is feeling at that moment. So it's for me to feel some sort of sadness when I come to believe that, for example, Abram is feeling sad. And so I'm not sure about Josie, to be honest, because she thinks so much, she thinks in functional terms. So he is sad, so this means I need to do that. But it's not clear to me that she herself is feeling sad because she thinks so much about simply what her job is. So, well, and, and that's that's really fascinating because Clara was specifically designed to alleviate loneliness, and she sees loneliness all over the place. Yeah, I mean that's that's very sad, and of course, um, what's bet- peculiarly sad about it is she's been given an absolutely hopeless task, right? I mean, you're not going to alleviate human loneliness, um, and you're certainly not going to do it um, through the commodification of friendship um, between, you know, being given something that will serve your needs, um, but which you don't genuinely uh, mutually interact with. Yeah, and we can see parallels with human history where there's this master-servant relationship that mimics friendship and loving support, but that's because the person in the servant role has no power. So this is this may be science fiction, but that's reality. Exactly. Well, we have a lot more to talk about. And, and the next thing I want to dive into is uh, I think it's fascinating that the parents in this future have outsourced the emotional support of their teenagers. They are buying something that they hope will keep their teenagers emotionally healthy and happy, but they are willing to literally risk the lives of their children for high achievement and success. So that that is the next thing that we will dig into in just a moment. This hour, we are talking about the book, Clara and the Sun by Sir Kazuo Ishiguro. It was published in 2021. And the main character of the book is Clara, an android designed to be an artificial friend 
for a teenager named Josie. With me today, I have three expert readers, Rebecca Cloud, an adult services librarian at the Des Moines Public Library, Diane Jeske, professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa, and Abram Anders, interim associate director of the Student Innovation Center and associate professor of English at Iowa State University. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from IPR News. We've been listening back to our 2023 Talk of Iowa book club episodes. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. It was published in 2021, and the book is told from the perspective of Clara, an android designed to be an artificial friend for a teenager, in this case, Josie. Clara goes to live with Josie and her mother and their housekeeper. Josie is a very bright but lonely child. She excels at her studies, but she also has some very serious health issues. They are potentially life-threatening. And uh, we don't really fully understand at first what those health issues are, but we do come to learn that Josie and the other children of her social sphere have been lifted. They've had a gene editing procedure that will allow them to excel and become successful in this dystopian future that we're exploring. But that gene editing, that procedure, the lifting procedure bears all these risks with it. And in fact, we learn that Josie has an older sister who died because of the procedure, and Josie herself might die because of the procedure also. Um, With me, I've got three (laughs) expert readers, Diane Jeske, professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa, Rebecca Cloud, adult services librarian at the Des Moines Public Library, Abram Anders, interim associate director of the Student Innovation Center, and associate professor of English at Iowa State University. And Abram, I want to talk about this. You know, this is really disturbing to see this world where parents are outsourcing the emotional needs of their children, but literally risking their lives for this high achievement and success. And yet it doesn't feel all that far fetched. What what are your thoughts? Well, yes, I absolutely agree. The the thing that comes to mind for me is there's so many facets of our life, uh, our contemporary experiences that uh, we know more and more and more about the risks and rewards associated with almost any endeavor that we engage in. And so um, it feels like everything we do is a risk calculation. Uh, we know that um, there's pressure within the educational system to excel at each level in order to get to a higher level. And we know we have these interventions we can do and these buttons we can push, but every choice is somehow also carrying with it the the shadow of, of a negative a consequence or outcome. So I think um, one of the things that's relatable about it, especially emerging from the pandemic, you know, one of the big choices we all faced in the education system was uh, moving things online to protect people's physical health, even though we knew that it was going to have this potentially and, and demonstrably negative impact on uh, the learning experiences of our, our students. So I think that's an aspect that very much rings true, that we live in a complex, um, volatile world, and uh, those kinds of risks are inherent in almost every activity worth doing. Yeah, and not even just from a, an educator's perspective of <laughs> trying to decide whether or not you had to take things online. Every single parent had to make that decision for their own child as well, not at the college level, but you know, those of us with kids 
in K through 12 schools, there came a time where we had to decide, do we send our kids back to school physically or do we keep them at home online? And boy, that was not an easy moment. Uh, Rebecca, what are what are your thoughts about this this parenting rubric that Josie's mother is, you know, fulfilling? What it really brought to mind for me was those conversations of a parent trying to live through their child. And of course, we don't know exactly what Josie's mother was thinking, but it, the way it felt to me as when I was reading it is that Josie's mother so wants to live through her kids to be these high-achieving, high-powered people that she's willing to risk their health and, you know, then sort of try to make them better than her by giving them NAF to make them more empathetic in a world that is full of loneliness, um, which, of course, raises questions of the ethics of loneliness and how one deals with it. But it, I don't know. It, it's kind of a sad thing for on both sides of her oh, parents. Yeah. <laughs> it is a sad, sad thing. Diane? Um, I think it's really telling that, um, and and I see this a lot when I talk to my students about what constitutes a good life, um, what is it for us to be well off, and they don't really think that much except in instrumental terms about, you know, I need to get this education so I can get this job, so I can get this salary, so I can, you know, pay this mortgage, so, you know, I can have this title or I can do that. And in this society, that's taken to the extreme. Um, there's no sense, for example, when AI is being phased in and now there's all these people who are post-employment, um, the human cost of aiming for this kind of efficiency is just doesn't seem to matter. And so the fact that parents are thrusting aside what we think of as crucial elements to a good life, genuine human connection, um, valuing that human connection, uh, valuing it above certain kinds of accomplishment, um, they're not even thinking about it. They have one conception of what a good life is. That's a certain kind of accomplishment and status. And everything else is just sacrificed. And this enhances the loneliness. People are clearly unhappy in this world, mm -hmm. but they keep on the same trajectory they're on. Right. There's right. no reflection. <laughs> um, there's no philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you, you talk about people who are post-employment. I mean, we do see the people who are threatened by Clara. Um, Henry, the father, seems to be threatened by Clara. And he's post-employment. He has, he had a good job. He had so-called good future. But I... <laughs> He was downsized, but then it sounds like he also made a choice to no longer participate in the in the structure of this society. Um, and then we also see Melania, who is very that's the housekeeper. And she's, I think, very threatened by Clara. And, and you can see why it seems like Clara could probably run a vacuum cleaner and, and maybe do a little cooking, Abram. Yeah, I you know the thing that strikes me about the novel that also echoes our our current era is that um you know these choices are not hypotheticals. You know, the fact that uh, Rick Rick missed out on his rung in one sense means that he gets to reject uh, you know this um 
dystopian environment where he's driven to succeed and somehow compete with lifted people. But on the other hand, it practically means uh, that he shunted into a sidetrack where uh, his, you know, horizons are effectively limited. Yes, he, he doesn't have to participate in that rat race anymore. Uh, but he loses out on Josie as a potential partner. He loses out on a career and a future in which he can really achieve his highest in terms of his scientific and engineering abilities. And, and, and again, with the father, you know, practically means his choice. Somehow now he's a radical anarchist and he's, you know, engaging in potentially risky political behavior. So I think one of the things that it portrays well is the fact that these are not just, um, choices that are based on personal values, but they're actually a part of a system where um, choosing certain personal values can come at a great personal cost. And I want to move on to a different topic because I I don't want to run out of time to talk about this. But let's talk about death because, um, you know, Josie's older sister has died. Josie may die. And, you know, this is a a big spoiler, but it's such an incredibly important part of the novel that we have to talk about it. So Josie's mother knows that Josie may die. She's already gone through this loss of another child. And she has this idea because Clara is such a close observer of Josie. Clara can imitate Josie's walk. Clara can imitate Josie's voice. She can act just like Josie. So um, the mother has already taken steps to start creating a new machine that would basically be implanted in a physical replica of her daughter that would continue to, quote, live this life of, of Josie, or at least, you know, in that suspended development. And I... Rebecca, I mean, that made me think we're so uncomfortable with the idea of death in our society. That feels like the ultimate denial, <laughs> like the, the ultimate of it's OK if my daughter dies. I can still I can have a different daughter that'll be just fine. Definitely. Uh, it, it's so unfortunate that we are so weird about death. Like people think, look, I'm never going to die, uh, which is not true. Um, and with Josie's mom. I think she's, of course, ignoring the fact in a lot of ways that Josie may very well die, but she's also trying to fix her grief in a weird way, kind of like, um, you know, when people have a loved one who has a long terminal illness, they're kind of grieving before the death a lot of the time. And so I think she's trying to preemptively do that. Uh, And I think it's really interesting, you know, her approach is to Let's stay out of the house. Let's have this suit made, I suppose, for lack of a better term, for Clara to wear to imitate Josie, whereas Josie's father is like, well, I want to spend time with her. I don't want to have to, you know, be in this room with her. And then it might be jumping ahead a little bit, but it also brought questions up for me about the the right to have a dignified death. Because uh, I don't know how dignified it would be for Josie to have to live on as an AF. And then, you know, of course, when Clara is in the yard, discarded. Right. It's a, Diane, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, obvi- obviously, it's unethical <laughs> what, what uh, Chrissy, the, the mother, is pursuing. But she's also feeling incredible guilt because she's the one that made this decision to lift Josie and risk her life. 
Right. I mean, she, from her perspective, faced a very tragic choice because she's been enculturated to believe that a certain kind of success is what defines the worth of your life. So she thinks it's a risk worth taking because otherwise Josie's going to live an essentially worthless life. Um, but I think that the thought that they could train Clara to act sufficiently like Josie, to walk like her, to talk like her, um, really emphasizes the lack of empathy in this society. Um, because as long as the surface, the appearance all seems to match, then we're good to go. Um, it, it's really missing what's inside, um, what's driving that outward appearance. At one point, Clara says something to the effect, I think it's Clara who says that within Josie, there's rooms upon rooms upon rooms. And the thought that she could possibly, you know, have explored all of those rooms and really continue her um, it is so um, outlandish. Right. But I also thought that uh, what really struck me about the end of the novel, where Clara is sitting in this, like, junkyard for her slow fade, it really struck me as an apt analogy for the way that we treat our elderly. Mm-hmm. When productivity ceases, uh, we move them to care centers, uh, to retirement communities, and they have their slow fade. Um, and Clara says, you know, I'm just putting my memories in order, right? Uh, you know, when people accuse elderly people of just living in the past, well, we've sort of given them no more role to play in society. And so they get their, we all get our slow fade somewhere. <laughs> That's interesting. Abram, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think one of the aspects of that whole scenario that was, I thought, a very disturbing shadow that doesn't quite emerge is what if the mother had carried through that plan? What if um, Clara had, in fact, assumed the appearance of Josie and was acting as her? And what happens a year down the road, two years down the road, three years down the road? How long is it before the mother gets tired of having a perpetual uh, 14 or 15-year-old or whatever the age would be? And, and then is there a morning or a day where she decided to flip the switch off on this artificial daughter? And for me, that's a cautionary aspect of the novel that says we, we should be wary of the ways in which we try to enact our desires through the means of artificial intelligence and artificial friends, because it may start innocently enough trying to grieve, trying to hold on to a loved one, and it could lead us somewhere very uncomfortable. I, we only have a couple minutes left, but Clara is constantly trying to figure out what makes Josie Josie. And in the end, she comes to believe that it was Josie's relationships that make Josie Josie. The love that other people carry for her in their hearts is what makes Josie Josie. And uh, I felt like that was a good good way for Clara to make sense of it. It doesn't make sense <laughs> to me. That's not where I think my identity lies. And, and I found that to be such a fascinating way to end because we've, we keep exploring these ideas of identity and we did not come to the answer, Diane. (laughs) (laughs) No, I actually found that understanding quite disturbing. And it goes back to this idea that um, Clara can only think in terms of her function. And I I mean, it's a way, again, that um, for many years, women were enculturated and still are sometimes that 
um, your meaning lies in what you can do for other people and how they view you, um, which is not a good way to build up self-esteem. <laughs> um, because, you know, okay, so you're in a relationship, maybe a romantic one, when that ends, oh, there goes your self-esteem. Right, right. So I found that a very disturbing take on identity. But I was relieved that an AI couldn't figure out our whole identity and completely understand humanity. I, I, I was I was good with that, with that part of it. We only have about a minute left. I, I would love, Rebecca, why would you tell someone to read this book? Why should somebody read it? You know, I think it is a great book for people who are maybe a little shy about other genres or speculative fiction. So it's definitely something I would recommend to them, to a reader. And I would probably give it to someone who is looking for like a deep emotional connection to a title. Um, And of course, that's easier said than done when you're talking with a reader. Not exactly (laughs) easy to describe. Right. Abram, why would you recommend somebody read it? Well, you know, one of the experiences I'm having right now, I'm teaching a class with generative AI, and we already feel like personalities are emerging with different tools. We go to Google Bard for one uh, task, and we go to ChatGPT for another. And I think that this novel is a valuable way to develop um, a sense of empathy and think through issues uh, that we may all encounter in the near future with artificial friends that come to us through our very own laptop. Um, So that would be a good reason to, to read the novel. Abram Anders, thank you so much. Thank you. Abram Anders, Interim Associate Director of the Student Innovation Center and Associate Professor of English at Iowa State University. Diane Jeske, thank you. Thank you. Diane Jeske is a Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. And Rebecca Cloud, thank you. Thank you so much. Rebecca Cloud is an adult services librarian at the Des Moines Public Library. We've been talking about Clara and the Sun by Kazu Ishiguro. And the Talk of Iowa Book Club is produced by Caitlin Troutman. We had technical support today from Steve Cooper and Tony Sarabia. And Prairie Lights Bookstore provides books for our readers. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.